So what's Jesus up to these days? Where is he now and what does he do with his time? I mean, really, what does he do all day? That's what we're going to be looking at in our new series that we're beginning today. I've titled it Ascension, The Forgotten Doctrine. We'll spend a few weeks in this series looking at the ascension of Jesus, how he ascended to his Father, how he went back up into heaven after his resurrection, and then after that, Lord willing, we'll begin a new series in the book of Colossians. So I know we just came out of a topical series on the Incarnation Now we're doing a little topical series on the Ascension, but then Lord willing, uh, in three or four more weeks, we'll start the book of Colossians and get back into a book. Sometimes you just have to do topical series, but I prefer preaching just through a book. So Colossians, Lord willing, will be there soon. So the Ascension is a forgotten doctrine in the church. Christians are not exactly as well-versed about the ascension of Jesus as they are other parts of his ministry, like his death and like his resurrection. And those two, his death on the cross, his resurrection, probably get top billing in our thinking, in our songs, singing, preaching, etc. And for some Christians, they're not just obsessed about his death and resurrection, they're actually more obsessed about his final coming. His return. You've met those people, haven't you? All they want to talk about is the end times, right? So the ascension of Jesus doesn't get much airplay in the church. In fact, some people just skip by it altogether in their presentation of the gospel. They stop with the resurrection. The empty tomb is the last part for some Christians. However, The ascension, Jesus ascending to heaven, to the right hand of his Father, is a crucial aspect of the gospel. And your salvation depends on it. It's that important. Your salvation depends on the ascension. Your salvation depends on Jesus floating up into the clouds. So look at this diagram of the gospel. We'll start in the upper left, and then we'll work our way down, and then back up to the top. First, we see that the gospel is rooted in God's election in eternity past. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul tells us that in love, God predestined. He set his love upon us in eternity past. It begins there. The gospel begins there. Then, as we saw in our Advent series, the incarnation of Jesus takes place, where the Word became flesh. Jesus lives a perfect life in our place. He never sins. Theologians call this his active obedience. He obeyed the law of God on our behalf because we can't do it. We're sinners. Then he laid his life down on the cross. This is what theologians call his passive obedience, his his passion, his death His death was a penal substitutionary death, meaning he took the penalty of our sin upon himself on our behalf, substituting himself in our place. It was a penal substitutionary death. He took our place, and God's wrath was poured out upon him. Then three days later, we move to the resurrection God raised him from the dead, and then after he appeared to more than 500 witnesses, Jesus ascended to heaven where he sits at God's right hand with all authority right now, reigning right now as King of kings and Lord of lords. 
but he also currently serves as our high priest. He is our mediator. He represents us to God. He is our prophet, priest, and king. He intercedes for us. He prays for us. We're going to talk about that more next week. My goodness, Jesus prays for us. I don't know about you, but I need that in my life right now. And he will continue this current ministry of his until his final advent when he returns to judge the world. And then after that, he will usher in the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, at which time he will make all sad things come untrue. I cannot wait. All the sad things in my life are going to become untrue one day. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And so during this short sermon series, we're going to be looking at one aspect of the gospel, his ascension, that forgotten doctrine that you didn't know you desperately need in 2023. So turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts chapter 1. While you're doing that, let me give you our big idea today, and it's this. Jesus didn't ascend into heaven to condemn you, but to comfort you. Jesus did not ascend to his Father so that he could sit up there and say, shame on you. I can't believe you're still doing that. Shame on you. You did it again. You promised me you would never do it again. Shame, shame, shame. He didn't ascend to his father to condemn you, to wag his finger at you and say, how dare you? He ascended to his father to comfort you, to comfort you even when you were in the middle of your sin, to woo you back. So we'll touch on that idea a little bit today as a preview for our series, and then we'll unpack it more as we go along. So Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 6, hear the word of the Lord. So when the disciples had come together, they asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, He was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Okay, so you're probably familiar with this passage. So you probably didn't even think about this, but I want you to think about this for a minute. How weird is this passage? How strange is this passage? Jesus was there answering questions from his disciples like he's at some sort of press conference like maybe an athlete does after a game, a coach or an athlete. He's answering questions and then suddenly he just starts floating up into the sky. He got swallowed up by a cloud and then poof, he was gone forever. That's weird. Jesus tells his disciples before he goes that they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem all the way to the ends of the earth. And that's weird too. And that's shocking. 
It's weird and it's shocking because several of these disciples had denied Jesus a few weeks earlier than this. They abandoned him when he was arrested before his crucifixion. And you know Peter denied him three times, swearing, saying cuss words and saying, I don't know him. And these are the ones who are going to take the gospel to the nations? Really? These guys? Jesus tells them that yes, they, this ragtag group of stumbling misfits, will be his witnesses, and not just in town, but all the way to the ends of the earth. Now, here's what you might miss. These guys are Jewish. They hate Gentiles. They despise anyone who is not an Israelite, anyone who is not a Jew. They avoid Gentiles. They want nothing to do. This is full-blown racism in the first century A.D., Full-blown. We don't like anybody unless they're a Jew, unless they're an Israelite. They avoid Gentiles. They hate the nations. They only associate with Jews. And Jesus wants them to go to the filthy Gentiles with the gospel? Really? And so Jesus just drops this truth bomb on them, and then he floats away. He says, y'all go to the people you hate and tell them that I love them. And the disciples at this point got to be thinking, did he just say that we would be his witnesses all the way to the ends of the earth? Are you sure he didn't say to the end of the street? Because I can do that. I can go to the end of the street and talk to a fellow Israelite, but go all the way to the Gentiles? Is that what he said? So as they stand there, puzzled and taking it all in, Two men in white robes appear next to them. This is Luke's way of saying some angels were standing next to them. He doesn't have to tell us they're angels. We should figure that out. And the angels ask the disciples why they're staring up in the sky. And it would seem like the answer is pretty obvious, right? So I picture Peter, the spokesman, right, saying to the angel, why are you staring up in the sky? Well, do you see that guy? Right up there, the one in the sky. Yes, you heard me right. I said sky. See him next to the cloud that looks like an elephant? Do you see that man in the blue and white robe floating away? That's what we're staring at. And so if you can pull back for a minute, the ascension of Jesus is kind of weird, isn't it? And as far as evangelism and missions and going to the ends of the earth with the gospel, wouldn't it have been better if Jesus stayed? I mean, he came back from the dead. If he stuck around, wouldn't the evidence be clear? If people had doubts, they could just go to Jesus' house and see him, that he was alive, that he came back from the dead. This guy never ages. My great-great-grandfather told me about him. He stayed the same age. He's still here. All the evidence would be clear. So it kind of seems like a bad idea to have Jesus leave the earth, doesn't it? Tim Chester says, The ascension seems a bad strategy. It removes the key piece of evidence that substantiates the claims of Christianity. It's as if our best player by far was substituted just as the game was beginning. But it's not a bad strategy. Jesus said in John's gospel that it was actually a good thing that he leaves the earth. That his physical absence was better than his physical presence. In John 16, 7, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. 
It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, he's referring to the Holy Spirit, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So the ascension was all part of God's plan. God's plan to reach the nations, which for most of us here, that's us. God's plan to reach you with the gospel. Of course, the disciples will need help in taking in all this information. As you know, right before he ascended, they were asking Jesus, are you going to usher in the kingdom of God now? Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel right now? They thought Jesus would defeat Rome, set up the eternal kingdom in Jerusalem, wipe out all the Gentile enemies, and it would be, you know, he'd make all the sad things come true for all the Jewish people right then and there, and then we wouldn't be included in that picture. They thought after this Acts 1 press conference ended that he would establish the kingdom and then the new heavens and new earth would begin. They had just spent some 40 days with Jesus after the resurrection. Think about that. For 40 days, Jesus was teaching the disciples. They were asking questions, learning. Jesus was teaching them from the Old Testament, saying, this was, this was talking about me. That verse is talking about me. This was looking forward to this. That's why they wanted to know, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? But Jesus let them know that the kingdom of God was not for Jerusalem now. And it wasn't just for Israel. It was for the whole world. Yes, even filthy Gentiles. So Jesus was sending them out to the nations because he himself alone could not reach the whole world by himself. Physically, he could only be in one place at one time. In fact, his plan was to send the Holy Spirit in about 10 days at Pentecost and he would, the Holy Spirit would empower them to go to the very people that these Jewish disciples despised, which was Gentile pagan nations, and to tell them about Jesus. And they would need a new, fresh empowering of the Holy Spirit for that to happen because there were major racial barriers that they needed help crossing. The Holy Spirit will be sent by the Father and the Son to empower the disciples to go to the ends of the earth. And so Jesus leaving the earth was a part of God's plan. There could be no salvation apart from the ascension. You cannot be saved apart from the ascension of Jesus Christ. All that Jesus did in his earthly ministry for us is contingent upon his ascension to his Father in heaven. If Jesus doesn't ascend, then we can't be forgiven. And I'm going to unpack why, okay? This is a very important doctrine, and it's why we're doing a series on it. Because most people only think about Jesus and what he did for us at what? Christmas and Easter. His birth and death and resurrection. Augustine, one of the early church fathers, lived in the 300s into the early 400s, said this, Ascension Day confirms the grace of all festivals together. He's talking about Christmas and Easter. Without which the profitableness of every festival would have perished. For unless the Savior had ascended into heaven, his nativity or birth would have come to nothing. And his passion or death would have borne no fruit for us. And his most holy resurrection would have been useless. And so the ascension of Jesus matters because it is essential to our salvation. It is a precondition for the sending of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost to empower the disciples to go to the Gentile nations. It means that Jesus spends his days now interceding for us, praying for us. That's what he's doing with his time. 
He's not scrolling through his iPhone. He's listening to your prayers and he's praying for you to the Father. It means that God really hears our prayers and it reassures our hearts that King Jesus is control, in control of everything, that he is seated at God's right hand in control of everything that happens in this world. The ascension of Jesus is essential to us being saved from God's wrath and the penalty of our sins. Now, hear me out. Yes, Jesus did the work of salvation on earth. He cried out on the cross, it is finished. We looked at that in our series in the incarnation. He cried out, tetelestai, it is finished. I have completed the work that my Father sent me to do. That aspect of his work on earth was finished. It was completed. There was no more to do. But there was more to do. There was more to do in heaven. There was more work for him to do in heaven. His work was not finished until he passed through the clouds in his ascension and then entered the Holy of Holies in heaven with his own blood. So Jesus' work was not finished until he entered that holy place in heaven by means of his own blood, not the means of the blood of some animals like in the Old Covenant, He's coming with his own blood. As the preacher of Hebrews tells us in chapter 9, let me read it, verses 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he's talking about heaven, he entered once for all into the holy of holies, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will that purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Here's what's happening. Jesus is the high priest who serves in the heavenly tabernacle. You know, the earthly tabernacle, the preacher of Hebrews tells us, the earthly tabernacle was a copy or a picture of the heavenly tabernacle. So God did just dream up the heavenly, the earthly tabernacle, the mosaic tabernacle and temple out of his head and be like, oh, this would be cool, let's do that. No, I don't like that, let's do that. He didn't bring in an interior decorator and say, ah, I wouldn't put the lampstand there, put it over here. It's a copy, the preacher of Hebrews says in other places, of the heavenly sanctuary, the heavenly tabernacle. And that's the tabernacle that Jesus went into, and he is there as our high priest now. The earthly high priest would enter the Holy of Holies only once per year on the Day of Atonement to sprinkle the blood of sacrifices on the mercy seat, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And by doing so, they secured forgiveness for the nation of Israel. And then it was repeated once a year, year after year, ongoing. All of this, we know, found its fulfillment in Jesus. He is the high priest that all of the Old Testament high priests were pointing to and anticipating. And it was a spiritual sacrifice. So his blood is applied to us spiritually, whereas the blood of animals in the Old Covenant was applied to human flesh. His blood, by which he entered heaven, is applied to our hearts, so he secured for us an eternal redemption. We're talking all-time forgiveness for all of our sins, all the awful things that every single one of us do every day, past, present, and future. 
there's forgiveness. And that's good news. Because I know some of y'all. This is good news that you're forgiven. It's good news that I'm forgiven. As William Farley says, ultimately, Jesus was the high priest to whom the Old Testament priest pointed. He ascended into heaven with his own blood, sprinkled it on the mercy seat in the heavenly tabernacle, and thereby secured for all time forgiveness for all our sins, past, present, and future. To guilty, insecure Christians, this is tremendous news. They no longer have to listen to their failures, inadequacies, and idiosyncrasies. Instead, whenever sin, past, present, or future, causes them to feel discouraged or defeated, they preach the ascension to themselves. They preach the ascension that I have a high priest in heaven who is representing me and whispering into the Father's ear, that one is not guilty. That one is clean. I paid for that one. So the old covenant was temporary. Your cleanliness as an Israelite, a worshiper under the old covenant, was temporary. It didn't last. But in the new covenant, Jesus declares you clean once for all. It's eternal, an eternal redemption, an eternal washing and cleansing. So you don't have to come back to Jesus time and time again to be declared clean. Because Christian, if you're trusting in Christ, you are clean. Now, right now, I don't care what you did this weekend. If you're a Christian, you are declared clean clean and righteous right now. You're messy, yes, but you're clean. You sin, yes, but you are clean. You are credited with his righteousness when you believe. You are justified. You are blameless. So hear me, Christian. You are clean right now in God's eyes. But this wasn't the case under the old covenant. Under the old covenant, you had to see a priest, and he would have to declare you clean so that you could enter the tabernacle and courtyard. He had to tell you that you were cleared to go in and worship Yahweh. The sacrifices of the old covenant were temporary and provisional. The blood of animals could not really cleanse you forever. Only the blood of Jesus does that. Only the blood of Jesus cleanses the conscience. However, even though we know that the blood of Jesus has cleansed our consciences so that we can now freely serve God, we still, many of us, functionally live like an unclean Israelite, don't we? And so we feel unclean. We feel like we're dirty. Like you just can't shake that sense of, I just feel dirty because of my sin. We feel that sense of shame that we don't belong around God, a holy God. Like he won't have us or like he doesn't want us. And so we end up heaping shame on ourselves and we self-diagnose ourselves as unclean. We self-diagnose ourselves as unwanted. We self-diagnose ourselves as, I don't belong here in God's presence because I'm just too sinful. We self-diagnose ourselves. Like we do on Google, right? What happens when you get a pain in your hip and then like your left pinky toe, you go to Google and type, pain in right hip, pain in left pinky toe. Hoping it's going to tell you what's wrong with you, right? Like, oh my gosh, I've got that disease, I'm going to die. It might be that you're 50, okay? 
And sometimes you just wake up and your hip and your left pinky toe hurt together. There's no reason for it. But don't we do that? Do we self-diagnose ourselves when we get some sort of pain? I'm running a fever, kind of got a headache. Shh, 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 tell me what it is. I, this is going to offend some people. I think doctors do that when they walk out of the room. After they say, tell me what's going on. Okay, I'll be right back. <laughs> I probably lost a lot of you right then. <laughs> but we do that. We self-diagnose ourselves because of our sins, don't we? We self-diagnose ourselves and we bring guilt and condemnation and shame into our lives. Understand this. Shame shackles us to the past. The gospel brings the freedom that we're all really looking for. Listen, if you are in Christ, trusting in Jesus alone, there is no condemnation. You are not guilty. You are forgiven. The blood of Jesus has purified you. You are blameless in God's eyes. And that sin that you think you have done, that you are embarrassed about, that you probably have been thinking about already, thinking I can't be clean and forgiven of that, that sin that if we were to broadcast it over the airways or put it in movie theaters or put it up here on the screen for everybody to see, then you would die. I mean, you would literally die of humiliation if we put that sin, whatever it is that's in your mind, that you just feel like you can't shake. If we put that on the screen, you think, I'll just die. That sin has been thrown into the sea of forgetfulness, according to the prophet Micah, who says he will again, again, that's a lovely word, again, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. So that sin, that moment that you are ashamed of is not you. It's not your identity, Christian. That moment, that action, those words, those thoughts are not you. That sin that you're ashamed of doesn't belong to you anymore. It belongs to Jesus now. Your sins and your past doesn't belong to you anymore. It belongs to Jesus now. In God's eyes, he said, this is a fair trade. Give me your sin, I'll give you my son's righteousness. Your past doesn't belong to you anymore, it belongs to me. Here's his righteousness. In God's eyes, that is a fair trade. Because he is just. And what Jesus did satisfied his justice. And he said, okay, this is a good deal. What my son did for you, you give me your sin and you get his righteousness. This is a good deal all around. Your sin for his righteousness. So you have no claims on your past or your past sins because they belong to Jesus now. And what he does with them is his business. What he does with your sins is his business. If he wants to forgive your sins, that's his business. He can do that. He's God. What does he do with them? You know, just chunked them into the sea of forgetfulness. That's all. They're gone. Here's our problem, though. One of my favorite bands said, had a song with this line in it. It says, don't drag a net through the sea of forgetfulness. That's what we do. We get in our little trawler boat and go through there trying to drag a net through the sea of forgetfulness, pulling up all these things that we're ashamed of, pulling up all these sins that we have done. They belong to Jesus now. You don't have to drag a net through the sea of forgetfulness. Listen, I know we've all done many, many things that we're ashamed of. Things, thoughts, words that we've said, 
when Jesus comes to us, knowing all of that junk, knowing all of our dirty secrets, and he says, he, he takes our face in his hands and he says, you are clean, son. You are clean, daughter. You are clean, my child. I paid for you with my blood and these scars right here are proof. He knows all of our deep, dark secrets and he stays He doesn't leave when we're exposed. He doesn't run away. He doesn't keep us at arm's length. Jesus didn't ascend into heaven to condemn you, but to comfort you. He didn't ascend into heaven to say, shame on you. Can't believe you did it again. How many times are you going to promise me you're never going to do it again? promise Jesus I'll never do it again. I promise just forgive me. Ah, here you do it again. He doesn't do that. He ascended into heaven to comfort you to tell you that he loves you. Are you feeling condemned this morning? Are you feeling condemned by your sin? That's the devil. That's not Jesus. Martin Luther said, only the devil brings up forgiven sin. Jesus doesn't bring up forgiven sin. Only the devil does. He ascended to pour his blood out in the heavenly sanctuary so that you would know for sure that you are forgiven, so that you would have assurance His work wasn't finished until he poured his blood out there so that you can apply his atoning work to your life today, right now, so that you can have a clean conscience, so that you can be assured of the promise in Romans 8, 1, that there is now, therefore, no condemnation from Jesus. Parentheses. There is no condemnation now from Jesus for those who are in Christ. He ascended through the clouds And he's currently on cloud nine serving as your high priest. He's on cloud nine interceding for you. Jesus is thrilled to be interceding for you. He's thrilled to be your high priest, to represent you to God. He loves to plead for you. He loves to pray for you. He is on cloud nine showing his scars to the Father, delighting in what he did for you on the cross joyfully representing you and saying, look what I did for them. And so we have to preach what Jesus is doing now, the ascension. We have to preach that to our hearts because that's what Jesus is doing with God the Father. He's rehearsing the gospel with God the Father. He's saying, look at what I did for my elect people. Look at my scars, Father. I shed my blood to wash away their sins and cleanse their conscience. See what love I have for them. Look at the scars. Do you see the love that I have? And the father replies, I see your scars, son. And with you, I am well pleased. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that beautiful? Is that how you picture Jesus? Pleading, interceding, praying for you, saying, I died for this one. Yeah, they're a mess. Yeah, they sinned again, but I died for them and my blood washes away their sin. We forget that, don't we? Which is why we need the doctrine of the ascension. We need to preach the ascension to our hearts because we forget that our consciences have been cleansed. We forget that the Father and Son rehearsed the gospel with one another. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus and God the Father and the Holy Spirit are always rehearsing the gospel with one another, delighting in their work of redemption. Think about that. They're saying, look what we did in Christ for them. Isn't this wonderful? Look what we did to save sinners from every nation. Isn't this wonderful? Yes, it is. Should we keep talking about it? And the Trinity says, yes, let's keep talking about it. Look what we did for these people. 
This is why we need the ascension, because this is what's happening in heaven right now. God delighting in what Jesus has done for people like us. So get this into your bloodstream this morning. Christian, Jesus came to wash you with his blood. And if you've not turned to Jesus, do so now in faith. Call out to him and say, Jesus, I want to be forgiven. Save me. Turn from living for you and just say, Jesus, I need you. Wash me and cleanse me. And he will. He came to cleanse you and welcome you. It's why he ascended through the clouds to pour out his blood on the heavenly altar, not to condemn you, but to tell you every day you are clean. In John 15, 3, Jesus said, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. So Jesus has spoken the word of the gospel over us. We're clean. He ascended to heaven as your high priest. He says to you today, Already you are clean. You are forgiven. And so what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus that was poured out in heaven. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus that was poured out in heaven. How precious is the flow, the blood that was poured out in heaven, that makes me white as snow? No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus that was poured out in heaven for me. Have you personalized that? Preach the ascension to yourself. Rehearse the ascension of what's happening right now at God's right hand. Tell yourself you have a mediator in heaven who represents you and who prays for you. And then understand this. Your high priest, Jesus, is more merciful than you are sinful. That's incredible. He is more merciful then you are sinful. That's staggering because we talk a lot here at Grace about how sinful we are. We know that, don't we? But the reality is that no matter how sinful we are, no matter what bad things, awful things we do that don't honor the Lord, how we break his law and commandments, no matter what, Jesus is even more merciful than that. And that's why we're not afraid to confess our sins here at Grace because we know his mercy is more. We'll never be able to confess any sin that overpowers and overrides his mercy. The minute we confess his sin, or confess our sin, the minute we confess our sin, his mercy comes in like a tidal wave. It's more than our sin. As Ian Duguid says, the purpose of confessing our sins is not to render us miserable, By simply reminding us what great sinners we are, it is to remind us of what a great Savior we have. And that's the good news of the gospel. We can't out-sin his mercy. We can't out-sin his grace. We show up here every week as needy sinners. We come to church to admit that we are addicts. We are addicted to sin. We are addicted to to ourselves and getting our own way. We're addicted to our own self-salvation projects, addicted to our own little kingdoms of self rather than the kingdom of God. We're addicted and we're in love with our darling sins and our precious idols. And we come here every week and we confess them. And how are we met here? People who are addicted to self, people who are addicted to sin, how are we met? We are met by a merciful Savior, a compassionate Savior whose heart goes out to people who love sin and are struggling with sin. He doesn't condemn us and hate us. His heart goes out to us. We are sinful, yes, but Jesus is far more merciful than we could ever dream. There's more mercy 
in Jesus than that awful sin that's in your brain that you just can't seem to quit thinking about. There's more mercy. The blood poured out in heaven reminds you that Jesus didn't ascend heaven to condemn you, but to comfort you. He didn't ascend to heaven to just say shame on you. He ascended heaven to heaven to hug you, to embrace you, and to love you. Will you open up the empty hands of faith today and receive him and believe? Let's pray. Jesus, I'm overwhelmed at your kindness to us. I was thinking this morning about Ephesians 2, which says, in the coming ages, you will show your grace, the the glory of your grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For eternity, ages, you're going to show us your kindness, your grace that you've shown us in Jesus. We don't deserve it. We admit that. We're just awestruck. Jesus, I'm just awestruck how merciful and compassionate and kind you are. Would you help us to believe this morning? If someone's here struggling to believe that you are this way and that this is your very heart, would you comfort them, speak to them in their heart by your Holy Spirit right now? Help us to believe this good news. Help us to rejoice in it. And may we go love and serve our neighbors, Lord, and honor you. Thank you for saving sinners. In your name we pray. Amen.